It was in Genesis 12 that Abram followed the path of faith by obeying God's command to leave his homeland and journey to a new land that God had promised him. And it was there in that new promised land near the city of Bethel that Abram built an altar and he worshiped Yahweh, chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. But then Abram diverted from the path of faith. When a famine arose in the promised land and Abram fled to Egypt. And some challenged me last week about how I characterized Abram's flight to Egypt as a failure of faith. And their objection was this, there was nothing explicitly sinful about leaving Bethel and going to Egypt to find food. But I contend that Abram failed to walk by faith in that case as evidenced by his fear of the Egyptians and the falsehood that he perpetuated about his wife's identity in order to save his own skin. I submit that Abram's diversion, his detour down to Egypt, in that case he he did not trust the Lord with all his heart. But he leaned on his own understanding, as I cited Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 last week. I contend that Abram, I'm sorry, that God did not direct Abram's path to Egypt. And in fact, isn't that the case for each one of us? We trust and obey so well. We follow the path of faith so well until we don't. And in that case, we, after walking by God in sweet communion and, and worship as Abram did as Bethel, we, we turn. And like sheep, we go astray and we follow after our own way. But the consolation is this. Every hero of faith that is named in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, whether it's Abram or Moses or Gideon or Samson or David, they all departed from the, the path of faith at some point in their journey, leaning on their own understanding. But by God's grace and because of God's faithfulness, God restored them and by his grace and his faithfulness, he can restore us again and he can direct our paths again. And so we come to Genesis 13 now. Rather than Abram and the path of faith, Genesis 13 I would title Abram and the practice of faith. Let's pause for prayer and then we'll, we'll look at the scripture text. God in heaven, we come as thankful people. And Lord, this morning we are so thankful for your faithfulness to us. And while we divert and we detour, sometimes far, far away from you, you and your faithfulness to us draw us back to yourself and restore us again. And we're thankful for that. And God, now as we read and study Genesis 13 and we learn of the biography of Abram, as we recognize his path of faith, now his practice of faith. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that he would instruct us from your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles open before you, Genesis 13. Abram and the practice of faith. The, The Bible says this, that Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south, to the Negev. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of Yahweh. 
In spite of Abram's failure of faith, at the end of chapter number 12, Abram repented of that failure when he turned, that's his direction, and he returned, that's his destination, to the promised land. Abram turned and returned back to where he had begun, back to where he belonged, verse number three. And there in verse number four, he called upon the name of the Lord. Let me highlight three marks of Abram's renewed faith in these verses. I'm calling the marks of a man of faith. Having failed so miserably and fallen so badly in Egypt, Abram wanted to put as much distance between him um, in, in, in the place in Egypt as possible. And so he left Egypt, verse number one. He returned to Bethel, verse number three, the place where, in, the, in the promised land where he had begun. And I suggest this really illustrates separation from the world. Letter A, separation from the world. You say, here we go. Leave it to the Baptist preacher to always be ranting and raving about separation from the world. How can you find separation from the world here in Genesis 13? Well, beginning in Genesis 12 and 13, Egypt now becomes an illustrative picture. It becomes a type of the world. And from this point forward in the Bible, Egypt symbolizes sin and bondage. And in a very seminal, but in a very real way, Egypt was the place of spiritual defeat for Abram. And so he had to get out of Egypt in order that he might return to the path and to the practice of faith. And folks, you may resent the notion of separation from the world. There, but there are so many Bible texts that speak to this matter and call us to come out from that place of spiritual distraction and defection and detour. Let me give you some of these scriptures quickly. First John 2, do not love the, the world nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he who does, or you might insert practices, he who practices the will of God abides forever. Another, Romans 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Another, Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So Abram had to leave Egypt. It was the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason. He could not experience spiritual victory in Egypt. And similarly, I submit to you that if you are a man or a woman of faith, you will not experience spiritual victory while living in the world. If you feel a spiritual drag, look around you and ask if you aren't living in proverbial Egypt. Ask yourself how you got there. Ask yourself if you should be there. Does God want you to remain in proverbial Egypt or want you to get out? Look at verse number two again. Abram was rich in livestock and silver and gold and he went on his journey from the south as, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and, and Ai. And, and, and so at first, separation seems negative. 
But we separate ourselves from one thing, that was Egypt in verse number one. We separate ourselves to another thing, to sanctify ourselves to another thing, that's in verses two and three. And so I would offer you this. It's separation from the world, it's sanctification to the Lord. And separation is not only from something, but it's to something. It's the other side of the the coin. And so Abram left Egypt in verse one, but he returned to Bethel in verses two and three. Do you remember what Bethel means? Bethel means house of God. And Abram returned to the place of God's presence and restored fellowship with him. And and, and I think the, the principles of the separation letter A and the sanctification letter B really need to be considered in conjunction with each other so often. If I'm leaving one place, I'm going to another place. If I'm turning from one direction to another direction, if I separate myself from something, I am sanctifying myself to another thing. I would offer you 2 Timothy 2. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some to honor and some to dishonor. Of course, the the vessels of gold and silver are vessels of honor. The vessels of wood and clay are vessels of dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor. The former, the first, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And, And so the principle here is about separation and sanctification. We reserve the fine china for special occasions the gold and the silver. We separate ourselves from the the, uh, wood and clay for those special purposes. Which brings us then, verse number four, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord as he had at the first. I would suggest the marks of the man of faith are not only separation from the world, sanctification to the Lord, also sacrifice to the Lord. Now note this insight. During Abram's ill-advised, ill-fated detour to Egypt at the end of chapter 12, there is no mention of sacrifice or worship. There's no mention of communion or communication with God. We have, when we have not followed God's way, when we are out of God's will, Our worship will either be foreign or it will be false. And perhaps you would acknowledge in the privacy of your own mind and heart this morning that you have wandered into a place like Egypt. You are far from God's intended place for you, the promised land, in Bethel, where there's an altar. If that's your story, your personal and your public worship will seem flat and your prayer will seem hollow, and your appetite for the house of God will wane, and you will come to me and say, Pastor Matt, I don't understand. Why don't I have communion with God? Why don't I have communication with the Lord? Why don't I enjoy Bible reading? Why is church attendance a drag? God seems like he's a million miles away. Yeah, because he's up in the promised land at Bethel, and you're far away in Egypt a picture of the world. So three marks of a man of faith in the test of Abram's faithfulness. Let me offer you number two, the mind of a man man of faith. The mind of a man of faith. And 
In verses five through nine now, it presents us with two characters, not just Abram, but also his nephew, Lot. And the thinking of each man, or the mind of each man, is revealed to us now in these verses. Look at verses five and six. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. All right, I would title this a logistical dilemma. Simply a logistical dilemma. And, and folks, this dilemma is so real world uh, for us. Every day in our lives, we can confront logistical dilemmas. For example, maybe there are more people in the house than there are bathrooms in the house. What does Sunday morning look like when you have to fight for time in the bathroom. That, of course, has been the, the story of our family over the years. Or maybe there are more drivers in the house than there are cars in the driveway. What does it look like when multiple people in your family have to go multiple directions, but there's only a, a limited number of vehicles to go in those directions? That's a logistical dilemma. How about there are more bills to pay than money to pay the bills? What does it look like when you have to shuffle or juggle the finances to keep things afloat? I was here first. I'm in a hurry. I need it more than you. You didn't ask to borrow that. We can't both have it our way. And logistical dilemmas are a real problem, and often it is our possessions that cause a logistical dilemma, as was the case here from Abram and Lot. Did you know you're not going to believe this. The other day, I had to scrape the snow and the ice off my windshield in the morning. Can you believe that? Do you know why I had to do that? Because my vehicle was parked in the driveway. Well, why was my vehicle parked in the driveway? Because Kim's vehicle was parked in the garage. And for that reason, my vehicle had to be parked in the driveway, which then caused me to have to scrape snow and ice off my windshield. You say, well, why can't you put both of your cars in the garage, right? That's a logical question. Because we have too much other stuff in our garage. <laughs> we have a lot of junk. We have so much stuff, in fact, that we can't put both of our cars in the garage. And the excess of our possessions creates a logistical dilemma. And uh, so I park in the driveway, and I scrape the snow and the ice off my windshield. But we face logistical dilemmas all the time, every day. And what goes through our mind? What is the thinking of a man of faith when we have a logistical dilemma? It might be frustration, or anger, or revenge, or jealousy, or despair, or selfishness. Look at what happens in verse number seven. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. I would offer you letter B, the livestock disagreement. There was a livestock disagreement and naturally discord emerged as the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot fought over the land. And, and th this is natural because our, our natural man, of course, will fight for our best interests, our own interests, and when we have a dilemma, in this case it seems to be a logistical dilemma, what do we do? We, we fight for our cause. 
and that is the strife that's here. I, I find the end of verse number seven to be interesting. Why does it matter that the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwell in the land? It appears to me to be really immaterial to the narrative. The, the issue isn't that they were taking up all the land because we'll learn in a moment they had plenty of land for both Abram and Lot, one to the left and the other to the, to the right. But I would suggest that the, the naming of the Canaanites and Perizzites here might suggest that the discord among Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen was being observed in the presence of other people. The nations there in the land were observing or watching the fights. And folks, there are few things that will hinder the testimony of a man of faith more quickly than when when they are in discord before the world. What did Paul write to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 14? Do all things without murmuring and complaining that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We might say the Canaanites and the Perizzites among whom you shine as lights in the world, which is what our children sang for us this morning. And so Abram faces this logistical dilemma. There is a livestock disagreement. And I think Abram responded right, as right as he could. He had a mind of faith. And he offers us a solution. But before we go to that, there's a piece of Hebrew trivia here in, um, in, in this verse number seven. The word strife or, or quarreling that Abram used, I guess, in verse number eight, it's the Hebrew Meribah. And many years later, in, in Exodus 17, the children of Israel strove or they quarreled with God regarding, the mar, regarding not having water. So Moses struck the rock in anger because there was no water. You remember this case that was Meribah, the, the very same word, the strife or the quarreling over a logistical dilemma. We have more people than we have water. But then let me give you this. There was a life-changing decisions that were made, verses eight and nine. So Abram said to Lot, verse number eight, please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the the left. Now, the first step in correcting a problem, a logistical dilemma, is to recognize the problem. Okay? We recognize the problem. The second step to the solution of correcting the problem is, is going to the one with whom you have the problem. Abram didn't go to the Canaanites and the Perizzites to complain to them or to ask them to fix it for him. Abram didn't work the the phone lines or the gossip chain. Abram went to Lot and said, Lot, we have a problem. It's a logistical problem, but we're family. We're brethren. We're men of faith. So Abram says to Lot, I'm willing to take whatever steps are necessary to resolve this conflict. It's excellent. The story is told of two Christian ladies who had to share the same office. One always wanted the window open. The other, you guessed it, always wanted the window closed. I feel I'm going to suffocate in here, said the one, if the window isn't open. The other, I'm going to catch my death of cold if the window is open. Then someone came up with a suggestion. 
Why don't you keep the window closed until one of you dies from suffocation and then keep it open until the other one dies of pneumonia? Then we'll have some peace around here, right? We'll eliminate the both of you. We'll have peace, the problem solved. But look at the end of verse number eight. Abram says, we're brethren, we're family. And folks, in the mind of Abram, the mind of the man of faith, he he recognized that union existed, both physically and spiritually. Abram and Lot were family, and so Abram surrendered his rights. He says, "You you do what you need to do, and I will take what is left. And folks, it is only the mind of a man or a woman of faith. It is only the thinking of one who can trust the Lord for every outcome, for every circumstance that that is able to say, you go first. Abram was the elder. Abram was the leader. Abram was the one to whom God had made the covenant. Abram could tell Lot, go take a hike. But in this case, Abram says, you go first. And folks, whether it is a matter of national politics or local church personalities or family pressures, our thinking ought to be, Lord, I will trust you in this. Not my way, but yours. Not my will, but yours. I will surrender my rights and I will trust you to take care of the matter. And folks, that's a game changer, or as I'm suggesting, a life changer. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of, Can- land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. It's a life-changing decision. But I would give you number three, the motion of a man of faith. It was George Mueller who used to say that it isn't only the steps of a good man that are ordered by the Lord, it is also the stops of a good man that are ordered by the Lord. And sometimes on the path of faith and in the practice of our faith, God would have us wait or be still or stop. And I believe in this case, God's sovereignty restrained and protected Abram. First, the divine restraints. God restrained or protected Abram from choosing the rich valley God prevented Abram from moving close to the the city. God restrained Abram when in contrast, Lot chose for himself in verse number 10. And that turned out to be a very big problem. Folks, if we are left to do the choosing on our own, we will often choose wrong. If you look again at verse number 10, I know I've read beyond there, but Lot looked and Lot was impressed with the plain of Jordan. Why? Because verse 10 says it was like the land of Egypt. How would Lot know what Egypt was like? Because he went with Abram to Egypt back in chapter 12. 
And it appears that Lot enjoyed that journey down to Egypt. He liked what he found there. Although both Abram and Lot had flocks and herds and tents, nowhere do we read of Lot's altar. Rather than devotion to God, Lot had a desire for the world. It's a dangerous place because he moved in a direction, he pursued a desire, pursued a desire that, that was selfish. And you can guarantee that it was dangerous. Of course, we know the rest of the story. But verse 13 explains that the men of Sodom were wicked. Proverbs teaches us so much about walking with wise, about a companion of, of fools. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man is the one who does not tolerate or associate or integrate with the ungodly, yet that's exactly what Lot did. It was a life-changing decision while God restrained Abram. Verse number 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. God is so kind to Abram here in these verses. How so? He reassured Abram of his covenant promise to him. There was a divine reassurance. And folks, I submit that God has done a similar kindness for us as well. He has reassured us over and over and over again of his promises in his word. And when you doubt, when you fear, when you worry about God's love for you or his purposes for you, rehearse what he has said in his word. And it's reassuring to our souls. And when our faith falters, listen to his word again and again. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God was kind to Abram and reassured him of these things. Verse 17, arise, Abram, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and what did Abram do there? We have a little bit of a pattern, a precedent that, that, that's recurring here. He built an altar to the Lord. I'll give you letter C, divine. And that says diving, but it should be divine regulation. Divine regulation. God directly led Abram, beginning in verse 14, when God instructed Abram to lift his eyes, I find it interesting that if you compare verse 10 and verse 14, the Bible reads that Lot lifted his own eyes and saw. And in that case, Lot initiated the look and he could only see through human eyes. In Abram's case in verse 14, God told him to look and Abram saw through eyes of faith claiming the promises that God had made. Folks, that is a, a great promise practice. Look when God tells you to look and see what God wants you to see. He has greater purposes for you than you can ever imagine. Let him choose for you. Let him show you a path and a practice of faith. And that's what Abram did here, his practice of faith. So how can I, I sum up the practice of faith as demonstrated by Abram in Genesis 13? I want to 
offer you what a favorite Old Testament Bible commentator of mine has written. Alan Ross has, has written this. He says, one who believes that God is pledged to provide. We sang about that earlier in our service. Thank you, God, for providing. God has pledged to provide. He has promised to provide. He has made covenant with his people. One who believes that God has pledged to provide for him is not greedy, anxious, or covetous. Lot, we've got a dilemma here. We've got strife between our herdsmen. There's not enough land for us both. You go first. You choose. I'm not anxious about it. I'm not greedy about it. I'm not covetous about what is the better or the worse land. You choose first. I will trust the Lord to govern, to superintend, to sovereignly direct our paths. That was Abram's practice of faith. And folks, when we walk by faith, the path of faith, when we practice faith, we are content, we are at peace, no matter what may befall us. Our soul, our soul is, is still and quiet. That's what I want for my path of faith. That's what I, how I want to practice my faith. In motion, the motion of the man of faith might in fact be one who is still. No motion. Allowing God to take care of the matter. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for Abram. We thank you, Lord, for his testimony. The the highs and the lows, they help us to understand. They teach us and instruct us regarding the life of faith. God, I pray that you would give us this stillness, this quiet, peace, contentment, that we can just stand still and trust you for what's best. Lord, I pray that you would guard us and protect us and preserve us from looking to the world or or looking to to what what might please our, our fleshly eyes and that we would wait upon you in every circumstance. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.